The Hearing. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Hearing, the Cross-Examination on Freedom of Speech in the Workplace. I'm Ilan Pimstone, Director of Practical Law Employment at Thomson Reuters. And I'm Sophie McGuinness. I'm a Senior Specialist Legal Editor at Practical Law Employment. We've arrived at a point in today's culture where people are used to expressing their views online on potentially emotive issues uh, such as gender identity or on the war in Gaza. And this together with the move towards inclusivity in the workplace and the ethos of bringing your whole self to work has resulted in workplaces becoming more open arenas for debate. An employer's culture and ethical values are increasingly important factors in engaging today's workforce. But where do you draw the line between being supportive of some groups and causes without alienating others with different views? Yes, even the most well-intentioned employers can face disputes if they fail to adequately balance competing rights in the workplace. So in recent months, we've seen a flurry of um, cases which highlight that the stakes are high for employers if they get things wrong. So last year, an employment tribunal awarded um, an individual over £100,000 when it found that the employer had discriminated against her for expressing her gender-critical beliefs. And in another case, an employee was awarded over £470,000 after he was dismissed for using offensive language in a race awareness training session. The Open University has also recently been involved in a high-profile case where they've been found to have not protected a lecturer out of a fear of being seen to support gender-critical beliefs. So what steps can employers take to avoid clashes between employees because of their opposing views? And can they restrict employees' freedom of speech at work? Well, we're delighted to be joined by three guests today who will talk us through these very difficult issues. Hello, I'm Sarah Gilzine, and I'm a partner in the employment team at Morton Fraser McRoberts in Edinburgh. Hello, everyone. I'm Darren Newman. I'm an independent consultant, writer and trainer on employment law. Hi, I'm Liz McGlone. I'm an employment partner at Didlaw, a boutique discrimination practice in London. So uh, let's start with the legal framework. Sarah, can you talk us through what rights employees have in relation to holding and expressing their beliefs in the workplace? Yes, absolutely. So the main the main right that I suppose we'll touch on today can be found in the Equality Act. Um, what the Equality Act says is you have a right not to be discriminated against because of your religion, uh, your belief or your lack of religion or belief. There's also some level of protection in relation to unfair dismissal law under the Employment Rights Act. And human rights law is also relevant here because both the Equality Act and the Employment Rights Act need to be interpreted as far as possible in line with European Convention uh, on Human Rights. So just briefly looking at the Equality Act protection, um, that applies to uh, someone that has a religious belief and by religious belief, we mean a, a belief uh, under religion that is guaranteed under Article 9 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And basically, the main criteria for what constitutes a religion there is something that has a clear structure and a belief system. The uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission Code of Practice on Employment quite helpfully lists some of the, the main religions that would, would automatically be covered here. 
the test for belief is any religious or philosophical belief. And I think we'll probably go on to discuss what that amounts to in the very wide range of beliefs that have been found to be protected beliefs uh, under the Equality Act. The test for what amounts to a protected belief can be found in the, the case of Granger, which I'm sure uh, a lot of your listeners are familiar with. Um, Granger looked at the principles established under the case law by the European Court of Human Rights under Article 9 and distilled that down into five elements. And if someone has a belief that is genuinely held, is a belief and not an opinion or viewpoint based on the present state of information available, it has to be a belief that's uh, to a weighty and substantial aspect of human life and behaviour. It has to have a certain level of cogency, seriousness, cohesion, and importance. And crucially, it has to be worthy of respect in a democratic society, which means not incompatible with human dignity and not in conflict with the fundamental rights of others. And that is really where some of the battleground in, in these cases that you've alluded to has, has been found. Um, and if you meet that test, if you meet the test uh, under Granger the, uh, just to, that you have a protected belief, then you are potentially protected from direct discrimination, indirect discrimination, harassment and victimization. I suppose where, where, the, where the difficulty lies is where um, employers are looking at someone uh, from the perspective of their religious belief and their behavior. And they're trying to distinguish between what has happened as a result of the religion and what has happened as a result of an expression of that religion or that particular belief. Um, and this is where the human rights element comes to the fore in the Equality Act cases, because someone can argue that they've been directly discriminated against, not just because they hold a particular belief, but also because they've expressed that belief in a certain way. And if an employee can show that the expression of that belief is inextricably linked with the belief itself, then they've potentially got a direct discrimination claim. And as listeners will be aware, if you succeed in showing it's direct discrimination, there's no opportunity for an employer to justify any action taken. So if an employer is saying, it's not your belief that we take issue with, it's the way you've expressed your belief that we take issue with, because we believe, for example, by seeing certain things about same-sex relationships, we believe that that's in conflict with the rights of our same-sex employees. So what the employee has to try and say is that's the expression of my belief. What I've said about same-sex relationships is inextricably linked with my belief. Therefore, if you've taken action against me because of the way I've expressed it, it's direct discrimination and you can't justify that. And what the case law is now telling us is that what the employer has to show is that, no, that you've gone beyond what's an acceptable expression of your belief. You've actually gone too far and you've indulged in an objectionable manifestation of that belief. And we can justify interfering with that belief by disciplining you or taking other action against you. So we've got a whole, a whole new sort of frontier, if you like, um, of an approach to discrimination law, which is heavily influenced by the human rights approach to Article 9, which is very much, you can hold a belief, you can express a belief, but if that belief and its manifestation interferes with the rights of others, and it's proportionate to take action um, because of that interference, then an employer will be able to take those steps. I should also just quickly mention unfair dismissal protection as well. 
um, which, uh, as listeners will know, is in a sort of separate zone of employment law under the um, Employment Rights Act. But again, the Employment Rights Act has to take account of the European Convention as far as possible when courts and tribunals are interpreting it. So it is possible um, for someone to argue in an unfair dismissal case that when the tribunal is considering whether an employer has acted reasonably in all the circumstances, has the employer's action interfered with their Article 9 rights in an unjustifiable way? Have they interfered in an unjustifiable way with their Article 10 rights, which uh, which is the right to freedom of expression? So human rights law uh, in terms of freedom of speech and freedom of belief can come in that way into unfair dismissal law. And also there is separate uh, provision for political belief and affiliation, which was recognized several years back um, by the European Court uh, in a case involving a BNP bus driver who did not have the right to bring unfair dismissal. He said he'd been discriminated against because of his membership of the BNP. And he took his case to, to Strasbourg and they said there's a gap in, in UK law here. He didn't have two years service for ordinary unfair dismissal. There's a gap in UK law. It doesn't comply with the European Convention to protect people in relation to their political beliefs and affiliations. So whilst it doesn't automatically give someone, um, doesn't automatically mean their case is successful, um, it does give them the right to bring a claim from day one of employment for unfair dismissal if they say the reason for the dismissal was their political beliefs or affiliations. Thanks very much, Sarah, for, for laying the groundwork for us there. If I can come to you, Darren, uh, and we can sort of build on those blocks. Um, so Sarah's starting to explain that the fact that these protected beliefs can, can come in conflict with one another. Um, it would be interesting to explore that further. Sort of, where are we seeing the potential areas of conflict now, and how is the how is the case law developed from Granger in terms of expanding beliefs which are now protected? Well, it's a really interesting area of the law at the moment because I, I can't remember an area of law explode so quickly. We're, we're just seeing so much case law at the moment around specifically the conflict of beliefs. And this isn't something that we've really seen in the past. We've had religion and belief discrimination since about 2003. So it's a relative newcomer compared to, say, sex and race discrimination. But I'd always resisted when this was coming in, talking about conflicting rights or conflicting beliefs. I'd always thought that everybody just has their own rights. And as long as they're respected, there's no reason for them to actually come into conflict. There's no reason to have to try and compromise between the two. I think I'm having to, to change that view now. I think I think I have to accept that the way the case law has developed um, very much does potentially bring beliefs into conflict with each other. And one of the reasons for that is something that Sarah mentioned, which is that when we're looking at direct discrimination, for which there's no defensive justification, the courts seem to have accepted that not only holding the belief but also expressing the belief or to use the, the phraseology that's used in the European Court of Human Rights to manifest the belief, the phrase that's used in Article 9. Um, manifesting the belief is indistinguishable from the belief itself, that it's not something that you can separate. And that sort of makes sense, because what's the point of having a right to believe something if you don't have the right to express it? Um, you know, if it's an entirely internal thing, 
how much of a right do you actually have if you're obliged to keep it internal. But I think that creates a problem for discrimination law because we're used to having something being either direct discrimination when what we're talking about is the protected characteristic itself or indirect discrimination where what we're talking about is the consequence of the protected characteristic or some associated feature of it, perhaps someone's background or environment that might be particularly likely to come from that um, that protected characteristic. So, for example, if we think about um, part-time work um, or flexible working, we would distinguish between the fact that um, women are more likely to need to work part-time in order to accommodate their childcare responsibilities, we'd regard that as being very separate from the fact that they're women. So it's direct discrimination to treat someone less favourably because they're a woman. It's indirect discrimination to impose a rule about working full time in a way that isn't justified. And it's harder to make that distinction with belief, to separate out the protected characteristic from the consequences of it. What's happened very recently and it was in the Court of Appeal in the case of Page, which was dealing with somebody who was um, expressing views about same-sex marriage in the media. And it was held there, the Court of Appeal said, that where, what the distinction we're going to draw is between holding the belief or expressing it in a way to which no reasonable objection could be taken and manifesting it, expressing it in a way to which people could object. So the rule that gets introduced is not, are you just holding the belief or are you expressing it? It's, are you holding the belief or expressing it in a reasonable way? Or are you expressing it in a way to which objection could reasonably be taken? And that's a test we haven't had to deal with before. Could reasonable objection be taken to the way in which you're expressing this belief? And it means that if someone is expressing a belief in a way in which reasonable objection could not be taken, then... It's direct discrimination to take any action against them because of that. And as Sarah explains, you can't then argue that what you did is justified. So we're in relatively new territory, I think, exploring how direct discrimination works, where you've got this potential for someone expressing a belief that other people may feel may find offensive. And I think that's one of the things that we're struggling with. Thanks, Darren. That was really useful. Um Liz, if I could turn to you now, um, we've heard that employees do have a right to express their beliefs in the workplace, but are there any limits on that? Uh, yeah, of course there are. I mean, I think what we're finding um, with this, this kind of wide range of increasing cases in this area is that there is a limitation on the expression and manifestation of that belief in the sense of... Um, obviously, is carved out and caveated, as Sarah said, by Article 9. But I think also... This is where, and I'm seeing this from my practice, is the growth of harassment claims. So you set aside your direct and your indirect discrimination claims because they are obviously rife with, with problems. Um, and you've got a much clearer route to a harassment claim in terms of how your conduct impacts somebody or how it affects somebody. And is it reasonable for that person to be offended by the manifestation of your belief? Um, and I think it's increasingly clear in terms of the, the gender critical cases that we are obviously alluding to here in terms of the unfortunate toxicity of the debate and also people's um, right to be offended and the growth area, I guess, of people's um, sensitivities 
and also how people articulate themselves at work and what they feel is appropriate to discuss in the workplace. I think that is a societal change um, in terms of how people feel it's okay to say what they want in the workplace. And I think that's the concept about going back to the beginning of the of the talk about bringing your whole self to work and where the limitations of that lie in terms of what is it appropriate to say? Do you have to be on guard? Um, and how and how do you express your belief that is a legally held belief or a protected belief? But is it OK to discuss that belief? And is it OK to offend somebody? And where are the limitations on that on that offence? Um, and I think that's a huge problem area for employers in terms of regulating the interactions of employees on social media. I've seen a lot of things about petitions, spreadsheets, um, where people have added names to things, terminology is used, um, where it is offensive, but also a manifestation of a belief, but also on the flip side, the contrary side of the argument is not yet considered to be a protected belief. So um, I think uh, hopefully that's clear. I, I mean, I've done a number of cases recently where harassment claims have succeeded on the basis of somebody lawfully expressing or manifesting their belief by way of, you know, debate and an articulation which has been reasonable, but somebody's taken offence, but it hasn't met the threshold of harassment or um, it wasn't reasonable for them to consider they'd been offended by by the belief that had been held. Can I come in on that, actually? Because I, I, I'm interested in this and I'd like to ask about some of the things that have been said in relation to the, the case law. One of the things that we got um, in the Forstater case, which a lot of people will have heard about, that was looking at whether Forstater's belief in gender critical feminism was worthy of respect in a democratic society. And I won't pick that all apart. But essentially, the EAT um, took a very wide view of what is worthy of respect in a democratic society and suggested that only the most extreme um, beliefs that Forstater came nowhere near would actually be excluded. That I mean, we actually drew comparisons with Nazis in that case. Um, and it was held that even if a belief has a tendency to cause offence, um, it's something that people are entitled to manifest. And that led to the suggestion in Forstater that if you are merely stating your belief, even if other people are offended by that, that cannot be manifesting your belief in a, re in a way to which objection can reasonably be taken. So let me give you a scenario. Suppose someone is in um, standing by the water cooler and they have a religious belief that same-sex relationships are wrong and the discussion crops up and someone happens to say, well, look, my belief is that same-sex relationships are sinful. I think they're wrong. I think that people who have these relationships are going to go to hell. I can see that that would be quite offensive to people. And I can see that an employer would not want people saying that in the workplace. But have they got a right to as a result of the Forstater case? Have they got a right to express it, even if it's something the employer doesn't want them to say and is causing genuine offence to other people at work? Well, I think this is where there's a there's a kind of practical balancing act and a rub. I'm not saying that people should go out of their way to be offensive but if it's something in connection with your religion that you've articulated without any kind of you know it's not saying down with all gay people but you're saying as as by by virtue of my religion itself then um this is this is the doctrine that i hold then i think you'd be um an employer would would find it difficult to use that as a stick to beat someone with maybe you disagree 
I don't disagree on the basis of the case law because mm. I think that is probably what the case law is saying. I just think that most employers would think that it's sensible that they should be allowed to say to somebody, do you know what? I know you think that, but can you just not go on about it? Can you just not can you just not mention it to other people at work? Yeah, no, and I th- I think that's true, though, isn't it? In the sense that you want to be able to have a conversation with people, say, look, I, I can respect your, your right to hold that belief, but obviously could you just bear in mind, you know, the variations in the workplace? Um, and I think there's that balancing act between, um, you know, holding that belief, as you've said, and people being offended by you purely holding that belief, because I've seen that expressed previously. But I think this is where the practical approach is. It's, you know, fantastic to discuss the case law, but obviously we're talking about employers who are, you know, walking a minefield, an absolute minefield here in terms of everybody's right to be offended, everybody's right to bring their whole self to work. So that that balance. But I think hopefully as a reasoned employer, you would be able to say, you know, I respect your, your belief system, I respect your viewpoint, but obviously do bear in mind that there are other sensitivities. The key word from the case law is certainly now coming across as proportionality which again is coming from the human rights Mm. jurisprudence so to use the example that that Liz and Darren have just been talking about if you're going to have a quiet word with that that employee and say we respect your right to have those views and to express them but you need to be mindful of the positions of your of your colleagues and our policy that we have on equality and diversity and you deal with it in a proportionate way you don't come down like a ton of bricks and discipline that employee that's when you start to get into the was that a disproportionate interference with their right um to express their views and i think that that leads nicely into the case we've been discussing in terms of the person who used the inappropriate racial language in training the proportionality approach isn't it and um, which led to a very disproportionate outcome i guess in terms of financials for the employer as the outcome um but it's rational. It has to be rational and proportionate. And I think proportionality is the new reasonableness in employment law. I think one of the cases it's, it's worth mentioning in, in that context as well is Higgs against um, Farmer's School, which is um, a case where an employee puts some posts on Facebook. And I think that's a whole other thing that is worth talking about <laughs> as well. Um, put, some, put some things on Facebook around same-sex relationships and trans rights that from her religious point of view, she had concerns about. And she was a pastoral care manager at a school and a complaint was made to the school, not, I think, by a parent or anyone who's directly affected by it, which, again, is another recent cultural phenomenon, I think. And she ended up being dismissed um, as a result of that because the school said it was worried that people would think she was transphobic or homophobic. EAT has just sent it back to the tribunal to look at again because they didn't ascribe sufficient weight to the idea that Higgs might have been, man- and clearly was to be honest, manifesting her religious belief when she put those things on Facebook. And in s- striking the balance, and it was very much about a balancing act that EAT said, they said that real weight had to be given to the fundamental nature of the right under Article 9 to hold and manifest a belief. So the suggestion was that it's quite difficult to get to the point where you can say it's now proportionate for us to take action against somebody who's expressing a belief in a way that we find objectionable. And the suggestion was that it's only at the point where it's necessary to protect the rights of others. So the test we seem to be getting is, 
is the way in which someone is expressing their beliefs in the workplace potentially causing us amounting to harassment of other people in the workplace? Is that is that where, where the test is? Which brings me back to, to my question about, well, how do we know when harassment happens? Um, at what point is someone allowed to say, well, it's now reasonable for me to feel harassed by the way in which you're expressing things? I think our next big case has to be a harassment case, doesn't it? Is it reasonable to regard the conduct as having the effect of violating someone's dignity or creating that atmosphere? The cross-examination. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. So it sounds like it's, it's very difficult for employers to decide when to actually take action against employees if they are repeatedly potentially offending others in the workplace by expressing their beliefs. So at what stage does an employer feel confident that they can actually take disciplinary action or dismiss? I think it's difficult to know when they can feel confident. I don't think there's ever a chance to say confident. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a view they're going to have to take at some stage as to whether they genuinely think that to protect other people, it's necessary to step in. Um, the question is, where does the threshold come when the employer thinks that other people need to be protected from this? And to what extent does the employer say, well, do you know what? Maybe as employees, you do just need to be exposed to beliefs that you may find offensive. And unless it is amounts to something different, something bigger than that, we're not in a position to take action. Just accept that there are people who think things that you don't think. Yeah, I think it's also different where you've got an employee who perhaps is refusing to carry out duties or is has a difficulty with an element of their job because of their beliefs. Um, if it's just about offence, people's clash of beliefs and you know, who's offended and who's not offended, that's one thing. Um, but there are a whole, there are all, all other issues that employers deal with where you have employees who are saying, "I'm, I, I'm not good to do this part of my job, or I'm have difficulty with this part of my job because of my belief in same-sex relationships, for instance." So that that I suppose is slightly easier for employers to deal with because if they do have a contractual obligation to carry out certain duties, then an employer can can pursue that. Um, or if they have good policies in place. Um, so, for instance, I'm thinking of the case of Dr. Makarath, who had a Christian belief, and he worked as an assessor for the DWP, carrying out medical assessments. And he had an issue with using preferred pronouns for trans patients. So he said he wouldn't use the pronoun that the, that the person had chosen if it didn't align with the, the biological sex that he, he felt that they had. 
And the DWP, I think, were found to have handled it quite well in, the, in that particular case and that they didn't come down like a ton of bricks. They tried to accommodate Dr. Makarath's belief, but ultimately they said, we're not going to know who's going to come through the door here. And you, it is your job to assess the patients coming through the door. We have a policy of respecting the dignity of trans people and respecting their chosen identity. And if you can't meet that policy and meet your duties, then there's there's nothing much more we can do about it. And they they were successful in that regard. I mean, the, ca- the case was complicated for other reasons, but that's a sort of oversimplification of where it went. But I think that's quite helpful judgment for employers if, you know, say for instance, they're dealing with a pronoun issue and it's directly relevant to somebody's job, the policy that they have in place may well help them. They may well be in a position of being able to justify um, what they're asking the employee to do. Yeah, I think the Makareth case is is a really good example there because very specifically, he has a responsibility towards patients that his employer has, has a responsibility towards. And his employer is obliged not to discriminate against people on the basis that they're transgender. And so they're entitled to give people instructions about how they treat potentially vulnerable people who are going through an assessment. And if he's unable to perform his job because he's unable to treat those people in a way that they are entitled to be treated um, by a a, a social security assessment, then I think it's much easier to say, well, it's not because of your beliefs, it's because of something else. And that's absolutely where indirect discrimination comes in. Anyone who believe, who behaved in the way you behaved would have been treated in exactly the same way. Are you subjected to a, a disadvantage because of your beliefs? Possibly, but it's a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. And I think it's, I feel really comfortable with Makareth as a case. I think that's absolutely the right outcome. And it does become more difficult when it's about discussing the ideas in the workplace rather than actually performing the tasks that you're employed to do. I think that's a really good distinction because, as Sarah said, and you've just amplified that you've got a get-out-of-jail card if someone's not doing their job that you employed them to do, but it's when there's those human interactions that become problematic. And I think this kind of raft of case law has also demonstrated almost the... um, the raft of inclusion policies and training and diversity and everybody trying to tick the box and it's actually not doing the job it's intended for it's not training people effectively in terms of balancing rights proportionality and I think that's something that hopefully given the raft of outcomes we've had there may be some changes in terms of public bodies changing their their policies to make them less one one-sided or over-inclusive to the point of exclusive i don't know how to frame that it's interesting isn't it that the the employers who seem to be at high risk in the cases we're talking about are employers who would naturally ascribe a very high value to yeah. equality and diversity and inclusion and would have all the policies in place yeah and would have all the policies in place and would be keen to have training and would are, are very sort of ethos driven and values led in terms of of how they deal with things and the kinds of work that we're talking about, if we think about Forstatter was a a researcher, we're talking about mm. people with pastoral responsibilities in schools, someone working for the arts council, someone working for social services, someone working in academia. It's those kind of hyper aware of equality issues workplaces where this problem has really kicked off because there's a there's a division in a group of people who would regard themselves as progressive or hitherto 
would have regarded themselves as being on the same side as this argument. And now they find themselves divided on it. And it's very difficult for an employer who finds itself in the middle of that. And I think that's where there's a distinction possibly in, in relation to something like same-sex rights, where there was, there, albeit that not everyone has the same view about same-sex relationships, there was some sort of consensus. Whereas with the uh, gender debate, we're ve- we seem very far, at least from what I can see, from some sort of consensus um, in terms of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's true, what's not true, what reality is. Um, sometimes seems to be in question and employers are trying to be the arbiter of what, what reality is, which is, is really, really difficult. Exactly. And I think that's the thing. You're giving employers this impossible task of of having to make um, determinations on something that's just outside of their sphere of understanding or ability. Um, but I do feel because of pendulum shifts, um, it's actually had an, an adverse effect or reverse effect than it should have done. Yeah. And that's where the, the zero tolerance approach can can sometimes mean employers come unstuck. And in the workplaces we've been talking about that place a very high high value on diversity and quality and, and inclusion, um, having a zero tolerance policy, whilst is a, is a laudable aim, needs to be tempered by the fact that there are different beliefs and uh, at work often in, in the workplace, different characteristics. And that one person's zero tolerance might be another person's discrimination. Exactly. And um, employers really need to be mindful of that before they take action. And I think also, you know, the idea of doing the right thing um, sometimes means that you're doing the wrong thing because it's not the right thing by everybody. Um, you know, pronouns and signatures and things. The idea is obviously incredibly positive, but it doesn't always come off as that. On, on a point that Sarah made, though, about sort of you know whether there's a consensus about the issue or not i think one of the side effects of the case law that we've had focusing on gender critical and trans rights i think we may have lost sight of what the consequences of that are for beliefs that we do have a a large consensus on remember so the four static case established that even really quite offensive beliefs and this is not to suggest that four status beliefs were offensive it's the it's the way in which the eat decision was put even really very offensive beliefs are going to be potentially protected. It is perfectly possible that if someone has it as part of a religious worldview or even a a philosophical worldview for a belief that is um, homophobic could well be protected, beliefs beliefs about the the role of same-sex relationships, I wouldn't completely rule out um, that some beliefs that might be racist could end up being protected under under the Equality Act because they don't quite reach the threshold that they can be regarded as not being worthy of a democratic in a, of respect in a democratic society depending on what the framework of, of that person's beliefs were and in those circumstances that's a real challenge for an employer because you know it's all very well on issues where two progressive people disagree well what if we all progressive people agree that this belief is a problem but nevertheless someone still has a right to express it and if they've got a right to express it, how do we then how do we then cope with that? To what extent can an employer insist on its values being abided by by its employees? If that insistence is a proportionate interference with that person's belief, and and that's where you you've got a bit of a shopping list of factors to take into account that the Higgs decision has given us, um, and I suppose that's 
the the advice that I would be giving employers would be right. Let's look at all the facts, all the circumstances. It's a terrible loyally answer, but it really is highly fact specific, highly context specific. Um, what what's been said? Who said it? Why have they said it? Who's been offended? What are the consequences of that? What's the nature of the employment? What the what are the policies that are in place? Um, a huge kind of shopping list of things that an employer is going to have to go through to decide actually i was i was able to enforce my diversity policy in this in these circumstances because it was a proportionate means of um of interfering with your article 9 right because it was in in conflict with the rights of others and and here's the evidence that i've got i've not made assumptions i've got some actual concrete evidence of it mm-hmm. um if if there's a suggestion that it's it was a harassing belief, I've been through the harassment test as well, and I've satisfied myself that it is you've created a humiliating and hostile environment for this person related to their protected characteristic, and it was reasonable for them to think that, that, that to to feel that way. So I think it's just going to have to be a real step by step shopping list approach for employers um, before they take any steps that might infringe someone's protected belief. So we've spoken so far about the pure employment uh, relationship. Um, Sarah, can we explore a bit the situation where you have an employer who's also a service provider um, and there is a conflict between the views of its employees and someone who wants to use their service? Yes, of course. So very similar considerations to the ones we've been speaking about already in in the employment sphere. Similar provisions apply in the Equality Act in relation to the provision of goods and services and in the exercise of public functions. So a service provider must not discriminate on grounds of religion or belief in the in the way in which they provide services to someone. Uh, in the same ways we've seen in the Employment Tribunal, there have been cases in the civil courts um, of people complaining of discrimination on grounds of religion and belief because they've been refused a service or some, something has happened to them in the course of service provision. It seems to have come up quite a bit in relation to venues and events being being staged. A um, couple of cases in Scotland, uh, there was a case a few years ago involving the Billy Graham Association, the Evangelical Christian Association, who were wanting to host an event in the SEC, which is a big venue in Glasgow. The venue became aware that there were uh, there was a a lot of objections to the Billy Graham Association coming to do an event at, at the venue. There was concern that some of the views that were going to be expressed at the event were going to be Islamophobic, they were going to be homophobic. Uh, there were there was a petition circulated, there were uh, articles in the media and Glasgow City Council uh, uh, being a major shareholder in the venue also expressed their concerns and referred to their public sector quality duty and f- and said that they f- f- didn't feel comfortable that they would be complying with their own statutory duties if this event went ahead uh, in the venue. So the venue decided that the uh, organization was in breach of the contract. There was a risk that they would bring the venue into disrepute and that was a clause under the contract. So they terminated the contract using that as the, as the reason and the Billy Graham Association sued in, in the sheriff court for damages and they were successful uh, on grounds of uh, religion, a belief. And the venue uh, 
argued, no, no, it was nothing to do with belief. It was to do with we were concerned about security. There would have been protests. Um, it would have brought us into disrepute. And it wasn't the beliefs themselves. It was all these other issues that were going to uh, flow from the event. And the court said it was clear to the court on the evidence that the venue had acted on the objections of both the council and the public. And those objections were based on the religion of the provider. And it was therefore direct religious discrimination, no defence, £100,000 awarded for breach of contract. I think they might have had a better goal had there been some proper objective evidence of security concerns, but they had no evidence of consulting with the police or their security provider. They, they might, if they'd been able to distance the reason for the cancellation from the religion, they might have been able to say that wasn't the reason for the treatment. Uh, another example being Joanna Cherry, uh, who is an SNP MP at Westminster. She has gender critical uh, views, which following Forstata, her views are, are likely to be protected. She was booked to, to do an Edinburgh Fringe show at a comedy venue called The Stand. And the staff complained about Miss Cherry's views and the venue um, told her that and said, the staff don't like your views. We're going to cancel the show because they won't, they won't turn up. We won't be able to staff the event. And she threatened to bring a religious uh, discrimination claim. It didn't get that far because the, the venue backed down largely after she took advice from a QC and published it on Twitter. And the venue said, right, okay, We'll, we'll issue a public apology and we'll put the event back on. But again, a, a lot of commentators at the time were flipping that round and saying, okay, the staff are raising these issues about Ms. Cherry's views. What would, what, what, would, what would we be saying if we had staff saying, we're not hosting this black comedian we don't like, we don't like him, or we're not going to serve transgender people in our bar because we don't, we don't agree with them. If, if, if you look at any other protected characteristic, um, though you, you could see that there'll be an issue straight away. So um, that that really, again, was a very basic case of the reason that the that the, the service has been withdrawn, i.e. The, the event has been cancelled, is because, yes, it might be related to the staff, but the staff's objections are based on your views. Your views are protected under the Equality Act. It's direct discrimination. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so turning to you all and going back to the workplace, what are some particular risk areas that employers need to be aware of? Social media. Social media. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just because it's un, it's unfettered, it's unqualified. Um, people just tweet away, don't, don't have any caveats, there's no filters, people troll each other. Um, and I don't think people realise that, you know, it's an it's existential of themselves um, and it's very difficult to police because obviously you have a right to a private life you have a right to a life outside of work but when you are potentially bringing your work into disrepute or you're bringing colleagues into disrepute um it's it becomes problematic and obviously that's where social media policies come into play um you can't ban it but you can obviously ban the use of social media in work time um and also tell people not to be nasty to each other on social media. But given the fact that it seems extremely appropriate for people to be nasty to each other on social media these days and things get played out. And now we have tribunal tweets who live tweet tribunal proceedings. It's all out there and you can't hide. Um, so 
it's I think it's a, a minefield and a nightmare and is a, an active Twitterer or Xer. I'm not sure how to refer to myself in that regard now. I genuinely do check myself now when I tweet stuff and I take a deep breath if I know I'm tweeting something that might get me a, a slur and and I either have to think if it's worth it or is this going to reflect badly on me and also my professional standing which is another thing to think about in terms of regulated professions yeah social media has to be a, a big number one up there for me I think the thing in particular with social media is its potential particularly around the subjects we're talking about with with gender critical feminism and um and trans rights it's potential to blow up and dominate something really very quickly so you can be engaged in a discussion that you don't think is necessarily involving a lot of people and you can express a view and that can get retweeted and that can get picked up by somebody else and that can get bigger and bigger and suddenly your employer is getting complaints from lots of different people about the fact that that you're being employed by them and your employer is being put under genuine commercial pressure um, to not engage with you anymore because of your um, your offensive beliefs or the, the beliefs that you've got that, that people have found offensive. I think people really need to be given awareness when they're on social media of what its potential can be for things to, to go wrong for them so that they, you know, they, they can exercise some discretion over what they say and how they express themselves. I think that's right. And I think also people don't realise that they need to behave in a certain way. It goes back to the point about people don't have to have filters anymore and they don't have to exercise that discretion because there is that sense of entitlement or free-for-all or I think it's so I'm going to say it um, and I think that's great in terms of freedom of expression freedom of belief people feeling yeah. able to say certain things but there have to be limits when it comes to the balancing of other people and um, you know what is appropriate it's it's interesting that the cases we've had recently, um, certainly at tribunal level, about you know this this clash of rights, have very often involved looking at somebody's social media and what they've tweeted and what they've said about various trans people and how they've expressed themselves. And it strikes me that the tribunals have been pretty tolerant of employees expressing themselves in quite um, emotive terms, being quite sort of sharp and pointed about people you know it's not the tribunals don't expect that your the expression of your belief or the manifestation of your belief has to be done in dry academic tones it can be satirical it can be pointed it can be angry it can be potentially quite rude and it's still being regarded as being within the realm of a reasonable manifestation given the the, the nature of social media um, but it's we're undoubtedly going to have more and more cases looking at this and seeing whether there's a rebalancing of that. I agree, and I think it's there's nothing worse though when you you're acting for somebody. You know they're on Twitter, and then you have to like to hastily call them. Can you take it down? Can you take it down? <laughs> and it's already been retweeted, you know, three thousand times, and then it creates a footprint. And then I think also one of the positive things is I've seen through tribunal tweets and things is that people forget what they've put on social media go to contradict themselves and you go back to that tweet you mentioned in 2020 and your whole argument's flawed because you forgot you'd um you'd said something else so that's where it's difficult as well there is a memory there is a footprint um and it's not as easy to delete as as other data so what what can employers do about that can they have a policy that says that there's an outright ban on 
saying anything on social media or is that just not reasonable? I think an outright ban would get you into difficulties with freedom of expression rights, but it should be possible to have some clear guidelines within the workplace about tweeting in a personal or posting online in a personal capacity and keeping accounts private um, and not say if, if you're saying anything that can be led back to you and your employer and might impinge on your uh, own ability to do your job or your employer's reputation, then that, that can be put in black and white. And, and obviously it depends on the person's seniority and what they do for a living. Um, but employers can absolutely have guidelines and, you know, that's the sort of thing that I help employers with all the time in terms of getting their policies right. Um, so that if you do need to take action, you've got something to fall back on and different levels of staff might need slightly different policies. Um, I mean, one policy, but adapted for different types of role because some people need to be active online because of the nature of their role, other people don't. Um, but there are definitely ways and means of, of dealing with what's appropriate and what's not appropriate online. I think employers then need to be realistic and careful when they're looking at what someone has put online. Because in the Higgs case, and, and you know, Higgs was dismissed by the employer, her Facebook page didn't refer to her um, employment. Um, she didn't, in any of her posts, refer to the school that she was actually working in or make any comment about the school. Um, her name was actually different. The name she had at work and the name she had on Facebook was different. It didn't stop someone making the link and, and contacting the school. And the employer still went into a tailspin over the fact that, you know, potentially there was this problem and they were bringing them into disrepute and parents might think might think badly of them. I think employers, when they've got those policies, which are all, you know, a good idea, then have to be realistic about the fact that people are still going to be online. You can't really stop people from being online. That's how lots of people exist now. That's how social lives and political lives are often conducted online and people are entitled to do that. And as long as they follow those basic guidelines, an employer isn't necessarily going to be acting reasonably if it decides when it sees it um, that it reveals that you're not the sort of person they want to employ. Um, that's just that's just not something that an employer is, is really going to be in a position to do. I've noticed as well a lot now of social media vetting being undertaken by employers um, and the problem with doing social media vetting is what, what do you then do with the material that you get back from that vetting? And then you, you have to decide, is, you know, how does, how does this impinge on our recruitment decisions? And I think that, again, is opening up a whole other minefield for employers. So... Policies and guidelines produced by employers seems to be definitely a very good idea, but is there anything else that employers can do to try and mitigate the potential risks? Training is another one. Um, I suppose training is a double-edged sword. Yeah. In that, Tra training is um, the source of half the problems, though, isn't it? I mean, yes. half, the, <laughs> half the claims that we see come from the fact that the training that was engaged um, was actually partisan. And I think one of the, one of the problems with this area is that a lot of the people who offer training in a particular subject have a very strong interest in that subject and come at it from a particular angle. And if they're training people who don't like that angle, then actually your training course is a potential point at which the whole issue blows up. Yeah, that's that's definitely a, a source of, um, you know, 
potential discrimination just by virtue of people you bring in to train your staff. And I think that's been the nub in most of the cases I've done in this area, the the disproportionate nature of the training or the one-sided view of the training. Um, but it is, if it's done properly by someone objective, it can be very positive. And I think doing it regularly and keeping it up to date, because as this podcast has demonstrated, the law is changing all the time um, and, and and evolving all the time. And, uh, you know, equality and diversity training that you might have carried out two years ago has probably gone stale by now and probably needs a refresh um, to take account of the way society's changing, the way the law's evolving. Uh, so definitely regular training, looking at your policies regularly and training on them regularly is is a very good idea. Was that not actually part of one of the cases? Was it not in Farmy? They said the, the training the farmer had asked for training yeah. on this on, on this very issue and they they, they knocked well, they, it back they said that their training was was appropriate or adequate as it was despite the request for further training and there's other cases that i've done where yeah training has been pretty eye-opening in terms of what what has been discussed um so i think and i think that leads on to to my comment about common sense approach in terms of you know, being proportionate and also um, trying to be so inclusive as to just losing your way and losing sight of the fact that you're never going to please everybody, but just try and take a middle road. You're never going to be able to say, right, everybody's happy, but at least I'm being fair and egalitarian to everybody who works here as far as I possibly can. I mean, I think sometimes employers have, have the temptation. It, it seems like a sensible thing to say, well, what we'll do is we'll create a safe space where people can freely exchange these views and that way they'll learn from each other. I think, do you know what? I try and avoid doing that on some of these debates. Actually, I don't think safe spaces are very safe for expressing some of these views. It's not actually a good idea to just get everyone in a room and have a chat about what they think so that they can all understand each other better. We're talking sometimes about very entrenched, very opposed views from people who are very well informed and committed to the view that they have. Yeah. Um, what you want as an employer, I think, is just to have some very clear instructions to people about what the appropriate way is to behave, rather than thinking that we can all sit in a circle and figure out a way in which we'll all come to a consensus. Because on this particular issue, there isn't one to be got. And employers just need to be clear about standards of behaviour that they want from people and, and, and to try and enforce it that way. I think that brings our discussion today to a close. I'd like to say a huge thank you to our guests, Darren Newman, Liz McLuhan and Sarah Gilzean for their fascinating contributions. I think this discussion has highlighted what a difficult issue this is for employers to get right. Um, they really do seem to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. And we, we've, we've heard in this discussion today terms like minefield, nightmare, and that against a backdrop of a society where, which is, uh, where it's normal now to be outspoken. Um, it seems really like we're in the most divisive issue that employment law has seen for many years. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The Hearing, The Cross-Examination, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.